Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. It's that time again. Time to start thinking taxes. But this tax smart move for 2023 could make it less painful. Open and fund a Fidelity IRA before the tax deadline. You could reduce your taxable income in a traditional IRA or get tax-free withdrawals in retirement with a Roth IRA. Plus, there are no account fees or minimums to open an account. Get started at fidelity.com slash IRA. No account fees or minimums apply to retail brokerage accounts only. Fidelity Brokerage Services member NYSE SIPC. It's Friday, June 24th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. I've been looking forward to this week's interview for a long time. Mary Roach is America's funniest science writer, and she's well-deserving of that title. Every single time one of her books come out, I am among the first to read them. And uh, for this particular book, I was lucky enough to receive a preview copy. So her new book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, uh, is now out just this week. And it's all about war and the military-industrial complex. But most importantly, it really sings the praises of the unsung scientific heroes to do with the military. People who test out suits to make sure that they withstand IEDs and bomb blasts. Uh, Scientists who are trying to figure out how can we reduce the amount of diarrhea that our soldiers encounter as they go out into places where the bacteria are very different from what their bodies are used to, how much sweat can a person withstand in certain heat, and so on and so on and so on. It's a really interesting book, but in some ways it's her most political book yet, uh, because a lot of her other topics, she's talked about sex, she's talked about cadavers, she's talked about the intestinal digestive system, which are all taboo in a certain way, but not necessarily political. So I was surprised that this was the topic that she was uh, tackling next. And yet she does it with her usual grace and, of course, amazing sense of humor. So humor and military science don't seem to go together. Yes, I mean, that's, you're exactly right. And I at first thought that, you know, when I got the book, and I just read the title, I thought, Oh, no, is she going to have to dampen her humor? Is she going to have to, you know, become much more diplomatic and politically correct? And, you know, for the most part, no, Uh, certainly, she is respectful. Uh, since, of course, she's talking about uh, situations in which people are sacrificing their lives for um, higher goals. But there's still a lot of humor in it. And, and it's her own irreverent voice that comes through very 
carefully, but I did ask her about, uh, you know, this idea of using comedy or using humor uh, to talk about a topic that, of course, is so emotionally charged. I'm also kind of surprised that uh, the military allowed this book to go forward. Usually they're very tightly controlled on stories that come out. And something like this, where they're going to show like a whole different side to the military, probably took levels of approval and process that I can't even fathom. Yeah, it's a really good question. I feel like, you know, it's not like she's giving away any state secrets. So I don't think she's going to get locked up for treason anytime soon, of course. Uh, and everybody I'm sure poops, that the Andre, everybody poops, <laughs> that, so. right, that the book was vetted, uh, you know, because of this. But at the same time, I feel like she talks about things that we are all very reluctant to talk about for a number of very good reasons. And yet, it's still, even for someone like me who, you know, is, is generally a pacifist, uh, and I still found it extremely interesting. And I also found that I gained a lot more respect uh, for people that are in the military because I was able to put myself at least a little bit closer to what it might be like to be in their shoes um, by imagining all of the different scenarios that she talks about and that scientists are trying to make better. So that's our interview for today. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my conversation with Mary Roach. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Mary Roach. Thank you. It's great to have you back on the show. And the last time we spoke, Gulp had just come out in paperback. And you told me that you were working on another book. And of course, there was a part of me that speculated on what that might be. And not once did I consider that it would be the science of humans at war. So let's start there. Where did you get the inspiration for Grunt? Um, in India, oddly, uh, covering a chili pepper eating contest because this was a uh, this is the world's hottest chili pepper, the Boot Jalokia. And s- while I was there, somebody said, "Oh, this, you know, this." Chili pepper was weaponized by the Indian Defense <laughs> Ministry, and that seemed like something I needed to cover. So I went to this lab in the neighboring state of Assam, and they had indeed done this with the chili pepper. But more than that, they were working just kind of some out there stuff like a leech repellent, which is a very kind of Mary Roach topic, leech repellent. <laughs> so that kind of planted the seed for this uh, this book. I was just, you know, military science suddenly presented itself to me as something that was, you know, kind of more esoteric and, and broader and, and less focused on bullets and bombs, which I wasn't interested in reporting on. So that that's kind of how it started. You know, in a lot of your work, you put the lens onto scientists who often don't get a lot of press. And that's, I think, one of the wonderful things about one of the many wonderful things about the, the, the writing that you do. And in this case, too, there's there's a kind of political charge, obviously, uh, when we're talking about sending humans to war. So did you do anything special for this book to kind of think about uh, the politics of what you're writing about? Were there topics that you you know, wanted to avoid explicitly because of some political purpose? Or did you follow your nose the way that you do in many of your other books? Oh, well, I, I, I follow my nose for the most part, but I definitely had an awareness that this is a topic that, you know, humor doesn't always mesh well with. So, I, I, you know, I, I guess I stepped cautiously 
in terms of my usual tone and style. It's still funny. It's still me and it's still my tone and my humor, but the humor tends to be a little more poked at my, you know, inflicted on myself as kind of the clueless outsider or some of the historical sections. And, you know, in terms of the politics, I mean, the, the, um, the book is, you know, by, by highlighting god awful heat, exhaustion, panic, uh, flies and maggots, diarrhea, stress, fear. I mean, it, it really is, uh, you know, um, in its way, uh, kind of an anti-war book. It's not the, you know, the, the, the more typical way that films and books do that is by, you know, by highlighting combat itself and the people who have been, you know, shot or killed, et cetera. But, 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 um, you know, I'm covering, I'm covering things that sort of are off the radar and, but are nonetheless just a, a, a real grind. I mean, when, even when things are going okay in the military, even when no one's shooting at you, it really sucks. It's a really hard, uncomfortable way to spend your time. So, um, you know, it, it, it's, you know, it's not a political book, but it's, it's, it's a, uh, kind of an anti-war book in its own way. And also the, the, um, the ordering of the chapters. I mean, I end up at the Armed Forces Medical Examiner System. That's the big morgue in Dover. And um, the guys who, the medical examiners there, the people who do the autopsies and, you know, thousands of autopsies on young people for the most part, they're some of the, um, they're, they're not fans of war. Let me put it that way. You know, they're so... So, you know, it's not, a, it's not a political book. I mean, it's a science, it's a science book. It's me, but it's also, you know, it, 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 it definitely has a sentiment or a feel to it that is, you know, not, I'm not a pro-war gal, you know, it's not. So, yeah, I know. And I grappled with how overt to be in talking about how, how much to stray from just talking about the science and setting the scene and, and how much to kind of come out and say, you know, it's that whole question of, do you say it or do you show it? Yeah, there's some some pretty vivid pictures in this book, as there are, of course, in, in all of your books. And I just want to give our listeners a little bit of uh, a framework first, you know, all of your titles have double entendres. And so what are some of the other meanings of grunt? Why Why grunt? Well, a grunt is a slang for infantry or a marine and a grunt is like the the low level the person who's out there with a hun- carrying a hundred pounds in a hundred degree heat and eating combat rations and getting diarrhea and dealing with flies i mean that's a grunt as opposed to somebody in an air-conditioned office doing the strategy you know grunt a grunt is the person that's who the book is about really i mean there are there are plenty of people in the book who aren't grunts i mean there are scientists and researchers and special operations people but it's it's really about the science that kind of tries to make some of that drudgery less onerous and so at the beginning of the book you spend uh, some time talking about uniforming and outfitting soldiers and of course the many different things that we need to think about when we do that which which for a long time for and for many of us we just don't think about like for example the fact that there weren't uniforms specifically for women uh for a long time until you know female soldiers started to complain about the fit and uh and even now they're not called 
women's uniforms, right? Right. It's the army combat uniform alternate because the women, the woman's uniform, which is narrower through the so- shoulders and um, a little bigger through the hips. Anyway, it's it, it. Some of the smaller stature men are were saying, you know what, I, this fits me a lot better. So, and in order to, you know, not embarrass them for wearing the female combat uniform, they called it the alternate. Or at least at the time, they change. These things tend to change every few months. But at the time I was at Natick Labs, they were saying, "No, you can't call that the female army combat uniform. It's the army combat you army combat uniform hyphen alternate." <laughs> and you know, it resonated a lot with me when you were writing about this because one of the jobs that I've had uh, as a freelancer is to be a fit model, which means that I I worked uh, with a couple of big brand name design companies, and I was their live mannequin. So they would try clothes on me to see if they fit an average person, um, and so I would have to talk about you know how easy are the buttons to do up, you know how how well are the zippers placed, and and all that kind of thing, and 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 so so. I was reading through this thinking like, yeah, exactly. I know what a plaque it is. <laughs> I know, you know, all these, you know, terms and so forth. And, but the sheer kind of specificity of what's going on in the military in terms of apparel really, I nearly fell off my chair. I mean, I thought we were specific spending eight hours a day on a number of garments, testing them for the general public, but there is a 22 page tome about buttons. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, exactly. That's the, um, the military specifications for buttons. I mean, the military has specs for weapons. It has specs for pretty just pretty much everything, but not that, not just a uniform, but a button. Like you, this button will, be, it, 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 the tests that a button has to withstand has to be, you know, they'll boil it in water for a certain amount of time and then they'll pull on the shank to see if it separates from the body. I mean, they, they really, it's sort of a medieval process that they put these buttons through. And they have to, you know, they have to pass. I mean, so you start to understand how the cost starts to run up because uh, the the people who are making the buttons have to test them and they've got to pass all these unbelievably specific standards. The toilet paper. I mean, I could tell you the tensile strength of the toilet paper that, you know, and the percentage of recycled material that has to be in the toilet paper. I mean, it's like, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, you know, it made me feel really badly for this one company. Uh, it's just small designer in, in San Francisco where I live that was, uh, cre- you know, that, that sort of is creating these um, outerwear pieces. And one of the, they wanted to have the military as a client. And I remember trying on some of these pieces and them saying, okay, like, think about if you were more muscular, more like a soldier, you know, how would this feel, et cetera. And now <laughs> looking at what you wrote, it's that there's, they have no chance. <laughs> they have, no, it's you true. Know, you know, I, like if you, ha- you have to have all these, specs. Um, But then it also suggests that if let's say they did win the lottery and create the one garment that fits all these specifications, like now they can make their entire industry, you know, a lot of money off of this, right? Is that, is that? Yeah. I was, this is when I was, um, I wanted to give, have a little giveaway on book tour to kind of hand out. And, and um, I found out that the toilet paper that goes in the MRE, the combat ration, it's made at this place in San Leandro, not far from where I live. So I thought I'll get, I'll buy a box of these little, little, cause they're, they're wrapped up in paper and uh, it's an individual serving of toilet paper, but it's to the military specification. So I put a little sticker that says grunt on it, which has a kind of nice double entendre I felt for toilet paper. <laughs> so, um, but uh, these guys, uh, they make the toilet paper for 
all of the, I mean, that that's it. They make, and it's this huge machine. They start with it. They call it the King Kong toilet paper roll, this giant toilet paper roll, you know, uh, much t- higher than me. There's a photograph of me standing in front of the King Kong toilet paper roll. And then they, they, you know, it gets cut into six strips and then it gets, you know, goes through this crazy machine and spits out, I think it was a thousand an hour of these little individually wrapped combat rations. But they're like, we, this is ours. You know, nobody can take this away. We have the contract. And that's basically, that's all they do in this warehouse is the toilet paper. I mean, it's, it's amazing. If you get that contract, you know, you, you're set. All of a sudden, so many of these like, you know, superhero movies are making a lot of sense, you know, where like the villain is trying to get the contract for, you know, to create the, the next robot soldier. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. So you also talk about some dilemmas that pop up. Like, for example, when you talk about hearing loss and, you know, you think there's, yes, combat is loud, so we want to protect our hearing. And so, of course, we can put in earplugs. But the other side of that is that if you put in earplugs, you're essentially creating a person that has hearing loss, albeit temporary. They can take out the earplugs. But that means that now they can't communicate with their superiors and their their peers as well. So, you know, Tell us a little bit about those kinds of dilemmas and, you know, w- whether the military has any strategy on how to how to deal with them. Yeah, well, you described it right there. Um, there there are military audiologists and they hand out a lot of the little foam earplugs and they, you know, talk about it's so important, not only for bombs and bullets, uh, bombs and guns, which are very loud, but but short duration, but also uh, the hearing loss happens from you're in a helicopter or an armored personnel carrier for six or seven hours. And it's, it, it's not as loud, but it's the duration of time also, you know, so it's, so it's kind of a combination of how long are you exposed and how loud is it? And so th- th- those two things together, the, the sudden intense loud bursts of weaponry, and then the transport, um, the rates of hearing loss, it's the number one VA expense. Uh, it's, it's a billion dollars a year for hearing loss and tinnitus. So, and, and like you said, you, you know, you, you, you try to protect your ears and now you've lost what the soldier calls situational awareness and 50 to 60% of that comes from your hearing. You know, you don't really realize how much you're depending on your hearing. You know, when you cross the street, you're listening for cars as much as you're watching. And if you're on a foot patrol in a, an area that has IEDs or landmines, you, you stay 15 feet apart because the killing radius, there's a term for you, the killing radius of a, of a fragmentation grenade is about, is at least 15 feet. So, uh, to prevent, you know, if one person steps on it, you know, you're trying to minimize casualties, you know, they walk far apart. So now it's hard. If you're wearing big hearing cuffs over your ears, you can't hear the person that you're on patrol with. And you're, so you're communicating, you can't hear an SUV driving up behind you. I mean, we, I was out at Camp Pendleton on a, demonstration of all this. There were uh, some special operations guys who were taking military audiologists around to show them, look, you can't just protect the he- someone's hearing. These guys, they, they want to save their lives, not their hearing. They're not going to wear, if it's going to cut down on their ability to tell what's going on around them, they're not going to wear it. So it was, the, the idea is, you know, you need something that's going to dampen the loud noises and amplify the quiet noises. And there is such a thing, it's called T-caps, tactical communication and protection system. And it's these big cuffs, like you'd see somebody at the airport on the tarmac, you know, big hearing protection cuffs, but it's got 
the system built in where it, it takes the noise and identifies whether it's loud or soft and treats it accordingly. It's also got a communication little mouthpiece so you can wirelessly communicate with the other people in your unit or someone in a helicopter uh, above or even back at the base. It's so it's, it's so, but it's expensive. And right now, mostly special operations people have it. So the, um, the people at Camp Pendleton were trying to make the point to audiologists, you need to be an advocate for this. You've got to really got to push for this and stop just giving them foam earplugs because that's not, they're not going to wear. Also, the thing with loud noises is there's no warning. You know, if a bomb goes off or a firefight breaks out, you know, you, you don't know when it's going to happen. And it's a, say, a six hour patrol. You're not going to wear hearing protection the entire time. So it happens and you're not wearing it. And then you know, one loud explosion and there goes a piece of your hearing. Yeah, it really underscored for me so many of these ethical dilemmas that the scientists and the military, you know, face as they're trying to decide, you know, of course, ultimately, the goal of war is peace to a certain extent, but it's also you want to minimize casualties. But you know, you still want to be effective in terms of, you know, achieving your goal. And there was this one, for example, um, guest that we had a little while ago who was talking about PTSD, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, and, you know, propranolol, which is essentially a, a beta blocker, a drug that you can take that, you know, kind of minimizes the sympathetic nervous system response that you have, the fight or flight response that you have to, you know, something aversive. And the idea was like, could you prevent PTSD by essentially giving people this drug as they go out for combat so that if they do encounter a traumatic situation, they don't have that, you know, sympathetic response. And, you know, there's, there's a huge ethical dilemma there because they're essentially creating soldiers then who don't have the same emotional, you know, or in this case, physiological response to something horrible. And so are, are you creating someone who can, who won't make the same, you know, empathy-based decisions? Did those kinds of questions come up while you were talking with these scientists? I mean, the extent to which, you know, you, you have to juggle the lives of the soldiers with, you know, the impact that that they have, but ultimately that the goal is is not always saving lives, but rather you know taking them at right. least from the enemy. Well, that's you know that is always you know when you talk about work that's done to keep soldiers alive. I mean, the people who are doing you know the people who are providing the care and doing the science are very committed and caring people. But the you know historically and and organizationally, the military when it is trying to keep people alive. Ultimately, it's a strategy thing as well. You don't win wars with dead soldiers. So you're, you know, that, which is always kind of nagging at me. I mean, I, I mean, I have some tremendous respect for the people who do, who do this work and they are unbelievably committed and caring and they don't see themselves as, you know, contributing to the mighty war machine. They see themselves as saving lives and, and that is what they are doing. But there's this other nagging thing behind it all or above it all, which is, we are trying to win and you to win you need soldiers so you you know you're you you, you want to minimize your losses for that reason as well so, so yeah i mean it, it it's always kind of there in the back of your head but you know it's it it's not i mean you don't want to not do the work cuz you know ultimately saving a life is a worthwhile thing to do regardless of the ultimate goal of the the military complex 
Yeah. And so one of the, I don't even know how to make this segue, but, um, well, maybe we should just go there. So I want to talk about penis transplants. Sure. Um, we talked about fecal transplants, uh, on the last time you were on the show. So I think it kind of, you know, fits, but you know, the, the reason that it sort of came to mind now is because I was thinking about the preparations that soldiers make as they go out to war. And you talk about the fact that, look, you know, really, they might want to bank some sperm in case this happens, even though it's relatively rare that they lose, you know, their genitals. But you don't want to tell that to a soldier who's about to go out to roar that, you know, he might have an injury that is that is that is so devastating. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, like, where are we? And and is this it, it seems to me like if you've got a blast that's big enough to harm your genitals, like it's not isn't that going to be fatal by definition? It used to be. And that's why they're wasn't a whole lot of work in the area of reconstruction and penis transplantation because for a long time, well, there are two things. The, the, the explosives were, were, there was less explosive. The bombs were smaller. And if it was large enough in the, on the unusual occasion when it was large enough to not only blow off the lower limb, but all the way up to the pelvic region, you wouldn't survive. But the, but, combat casualty care and, and medivacs and hospitals that are further forward and uh, closer to the action. All, all of that is combined to uh, keep more people alive who have... So there, there are more people now who have this injury, who survived this injury and who need reconstructive work or even transplantation. So so yeah, for, for a long time, no, you know, nobody talked about it because it, it wasn't really a concern. I mean, even now it's still, it's what, 300 genital injuries to 18,000 limb amputation. So it's, it's, it's still not that common. But, um, it, but even the soldiers, I talked to a Marine who had lost both his legs, not his genitals, but his, in his case, a, a grenade on his belt or, or several of them uh, went off when an IED close by went off. So, and he said, you know, we talk, we talked about it all the time. We talked about getting blown up and, and how much, you know, what would you do and et cetera. And, but we always, we always just were envisioning, yeah, you might lose a lot of one leg and part of a hand or et cetera. He said, nobody ever talked about your genitals. Nobody, nobody ever thought about that. Um, and now it's becoming more, it's been, you know, more common than ever. So that, uh, that work is going on. I was at a, um, a cadaver lab at Johns Hopkins that, was um, looking at when you transplant a penis, which arteries are critical to take? You know, wh- what do you have to reconnect? Uh, what's what are the most important things that um, you know? Which artery feeds which region of tissue? Because you don't just take the penis; you take the skin and tissue surrounding it. You know, like a tra- transplanting a tree, you don't just lop it off. You take the roots and the soil around it. So, so they were, uh, they were looking into that. They were you know, artificially perfusing, you know, letting uh, this blue fluid drain into a cadaver and then seeing, you could sort of see it turn blue, the skin would turn blue and that would let you know, okay, this is an important artery to reconnect because uh, if you don't, you're going to have the tissue dying in this area. And that's what happened with the first penis transplant in China that the Guangzhou military command hospital, uh, did in 2006, the penis was cut off after two, uh, removed after two weeks because of, um, well, they mentioned a psychological issue, but if you look at the photographs, the surgeons in the U.S. said you could see there had been some necrosis, like the skin had turned black because it wasn't getting blood. So they were working out 
you know, perfusion in which, you know, making sure that all the arteries and nerves that need to be connected are connected. So that, and you know, that that's uh, something the military obviously has a, is interested in supporting and funding because these injuries are, um, at least in this particular conflict with IEDs, who knows what the next threat will be, as they say, threat, the next weapon will be. I'm amazed that they can do this, for one thing, although I, I suppose knowing that gender reassignment surgery is possible, it shouldn't be that surprising, although I also imagine that maybe they can learn something from uh, these surgeries that might help people who want uh, gender reassignment surgery. But then that brings up this question of, you know, your genitalia are very personal. Uh, it's a little bit, you know, are, are there special issues that people consider, like, for example, you know, if you you are of a certain religious, be, you know, uh, belief, would do you can you ask for a particular type of penis, one that's circumcised, circumcised or not? I mean, are are these things that people think about, or is it <laughs> is it just way too um, high? You know. Yeah, I brought that up, and I you know, like I I I don't remember. I think that was sort of the least of their concerns at that point. But they were, but but you know, I have to say the the cadaver. I mean, sorry that the, the there is a recipient that the Johns Hopkins team, and I was at Johns Hopkins, not Mass General, where the first penis transplant a couple of weeks ago happened. I think maybe three weeks ago, the, and it was, this was a cancer patient, not a vet. Um, the, the Johns Hopkins team has a vet, uh, who is waiting for a, su a suitable match. And it's been months and months that they've been waiting for this match. And I said, well, what needs to match? What's different? And he said, well, for one thing, color. And, um, you know, he didn't, he didn't say circumcised or not, but I would, I would think if, you know, if color is an issue, then certainly circumcision. I mean, I suppose you could, you could circumcise the thing, but you couldn't uncircumcise it. So, um, yeah, I would imagine if, uh, if that were, uh, you could certainly put in a request. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I guess, you know, putting that particular topic to bed, um, there are, there are a couple of other, <laughs> Uh, you know, really kind of obviously interesting, but also kind of toe curling in the not good way chapter. Sorry, this is I'm really butchering this segue too. Um, I blame your book. Um, but the <laughs> segues are not my strong point. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, the taboo topics. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, you know, you also talk about, for example, um, you know, maggots and and how they were discovered. Uh, essentially, their their properties of being able to clean a wound seem to have been, at least in uh, modern medicine, discovered on the battlefield. And so are they still used today? Uh, is this something that, you know, is that is that a kind of thing, another way of treating wounds in the field or even off the field that is used. They are still used. Um, yeah, it was, it was World War I that, that, that there were a couple of soldiers who came in with big open wounds. They'd been lying in the field for days and uh, there were maggots in the wound. They flushed them out and the surgeon, William Baer, expected to see infection because maggots, you know, they they, you know, the people associate flies and maggots with spreading disease, which they do. But maggots, uh, they perform this sort of natural debridement. They eat the dead tissue. They don't eat the live tissue. They only eat the dead tissue. And that's what you need to promote healing. I mean, the, the, you can do surgical debridement, which is what's more commonly done. Um, but the, but the maggots are, uh, and they're also, they're secreting or doing something that fights infection. And that's 
not there's different theories as to exactly how they do that, but they're kind of miraculous. And there was a guy, George Peck, who's a military entomologist at Walter Reed, who was doing um, research uh, into whether or not like this would this is something they should be doing with re- recurrent infections and IED wounds because with an IED wound. You step on an IED and it kind of blows the, you know, blows the tissue away from the bone, kind of like goes out and then it blows the debris and, you know, all the stuff because it's a buried bomb. So the sand and dirt gets blown tons of it into the wound. Then the skin and the muscle comes back down on it. So you have this deeply embedded foreign material that's full of bacteria and fungus and you name it. So, and, and recurring infection is an issue. And George Peck, was trying to say, look, we should be considering maggots instead of surgical debridement. Um, it's been an uphill struggle for him because uh, there's resistance. Maggots are, they're maggots. They're gross. And they turn into flies. And you don't want flies. The last thing you want in a hospital is flies. Flies spread infection. So uh, where, where maggots are used um, today mostly is in uh, diabetics with uh, ulcers on their feet, which uh, don't heal well, it's very hard to fight infection. Uh, uh, it's the, you know, the specifics of diabetes that, that create this situation where you have these ulcers that don't heal. And the maggots work really well. And the alternative is eventually amputation. So the, um, that's called maggot therapy. It's, uh, the maggot is an FDA-approved medical device. There's a Medicare reimbursement code for maggots. It's kind of amazing. And, uh, it, but it, it isn't, it's not being used in the military much, although, um, surgeons are open to it. There was one survey of military physicians, like, you know, saying, have you heard of this? Do you think it'd be a good addition to your arsenal of treatment? And they were open to it. They just, they were just like, I don't, you know, who changes the maggots? How often? Where do I get them? You know, there just wasn't a lot of information available about it. So there are people who are quietly trying to, you know, encourage people to use them, but, uh, you know, the, the, the yuck factor is pretty powerful. And you have to change the dressing. It's a little cage dressing to keep the maggots in the wound and not wandering elsewhere and freaking out the hospital staff. So they, and you got to change them every couple, every few days because uh, once a maggot eats enough and is ready to go pupate and become a fly, it leaves and it wants to, you know, get out of there and, and go become a fly, which is what you don't want in a medical environment. So they, so the nursing staff has to be uh, trained in how to change the maggot dressing. They may not wish to have that added to their job duty list. <laughs> so it's so any, anyway, but there, uh, George Peck was a lovely man who has a tremendous amount of fondness and respect for the maggot. So uh, it sounds a little bit like some of the same problems that, uh, you know, we talked about when we talked about fecal transplant and, and, and the ick factor, but, but potentially, you know, as, yeah, yeah, having some, uh, some, some potential for the future. So I just want to remind our listeners that uh, your book, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And I wanted to finish off with um, something that one of the army rangers that you interviewed said his name was Josh Purvis. And, you know, at one point he, he sort of turns to you and says, do you want to know why my friend got killed? And then he talks about how, as he was going into a particular building, he couldn't be quiet because he was carrying so much stuff. And presumably a lot of this stuff is the kind of stuff that scientists have tested and found to be potentially life-saving, you know, like the hearing stuff and, and all this, this other stuff essentially you know and then uh you know you you go on to talk about well 
you know, who are the people that are are sitting in a, in a in a nice office and making these decisions? And what's the name for that? And he says scientists. So, you know, you do such a go- great job of of highlighting the importance of the work of the scientists. Um, but I wanted to get your reaction to what Josh was saying about how, you know, maybe in some cases, well, yeah, just just you know, f- go from there. I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah. Um- he talked about, yeah, he talked about not only having too much stuff, but just when somebody says, oh, we have this equation and we can work out, we can f- predict how much you're going to be sweating based on the weather report and how much you're carrying and how much exertion, and that will tell you how much water to bring. And, you know, that's a really great thing in, in concept, but when you're the person on the ground and the situation changes daily and uh, the, there's so many factors that just can't, that the person at the lab can't really factor in. Like there's no universal mission, you know, so, and it's very frustrating for the, for the people who are putting their lives at risk and, and dealing with all of this to be told by somebody in an air conditioned office who isn't putting their life at risk. Hey, you can only bring this much water and you have to carry this much ammo. And this is, you know, this is the rule that that is really both frustrating and not always helpful. So it's a constant, you know, it's a, it, there's a lot of kind of misunderstanding back, you know, between the two camps, I think. Uh, I mean, every, everybody's trying to do the right thing and make it a better situation, but it's, it's you know, the, the community, there's no direct communication. I wish that there were a way to give feedback, you know, from the field more directly. Like the, the people at the morgue in Dover have this amazing program feedback to the field where the person who did the medical care, tried to save the life, uh, gets on a teleconference with the medical examiner who sees the body with all the life-saving equipment in place and can say, you know what, the tourniquet, um, the tourniquets should be placed a little further out from that junction. They work better. And just like giving the feedback right away and, and being able to have this give and take from the people who are doing the work in these critical scenarios to the, the you know, the people who are seeing the aftermath or the people uh, in the labs who are trying to come up with something that's helpful. So um, because there isn't that direct line of feedback, it's incredibly frustrating for the grunt, you know, the Marine, or in his case, he was a, you know, uh, Army Ranger, um, to have somebody telling them how best to do their job. It's, you know, that you get that in every occupation, somebody at the top, you know, coming down with a rule, and you are the person who, you know, out in the field doing the work, you know, there's, uh, it's, it's not always well received, put it that way. And, and, you know, yet there's so many amazing cases that you document in the book that were so interesting about how science can make a difference uh, in, in the lives and the work of these soldiers. And so I, I really want to, you know, commend you for, uh, you know, unearthing all of this information that certainly for me was entirely novel. Um, so, so thanks for enlightening me. Well, sure. (laughs) And thanks for being on Inquiring Minds, Mary Roach. Oh, you bet. Thank you so much. So, you know, scientists are always looking for funding. And I do remember there were a couple of very well-funded labs in some of the institutions that I've worked at uh, as a scientist. And they were funded by the Department of Defense. And always, you know, when I heard about these grants, it seemed a little bit, first of all, it's like not like you apply directly for those grants. Sometimes those grants just kind of find their way to you. (laughs) So there's this like kind of 
weird behind the scenes thing of how that happens. Um, and then also there is, of course, this added secrecy. So like, can you publish your data if you are um, doing studies that are funded by the Department of Defense? And yes, in some cases you can. And I'm sure there are cases in which the data don't get published. <laughs> so, you know, what is your experience of sort of military funded science? Well, it's different because there's different aspects of the the government that fund research. Like you mentioned, the Department of Defense, Department of Energy, which actually has a lot of interfaces in this, also funds a lot of stuff. And then, then everyone's favorite, DARPA, which funds a lot of secretive projects, but also a lot of just open research. I just also think it would be funny if you were studying, like, how do I make sure military folks have better forms of diarrhea? Maybe that maybe that paper is going to be a little bit strange to publish anyways. I, I mean, I just found it fascinating that like there's so many just everyday kind of situations which the military has to deal with in excessive detail. I mean, how many times did they test that button? How many like how big of a protocol book do they have for, yeah. for a button? Yeah, it was like 22 pages. And she talks about how important this is, because if you're a sniper, you have to be very quiet. Uh, and if you're lying down on a bunch of buttons, that could be very painful. So there was, you know, apparently somebody suggested the solution of Velcro, but Velcro is very noisy. So Velcro can actually kill in certain situations if they, you know, if it, if it gives away a person's position. Um, so they, they actually have the majority of the, the fasteners are these hook and loop fastens, which for most of us are just annoying. Um, but, you know, in the military, they're, they're particularly useful. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's really fascinating in terms of, you know, the specific things that the military have to worry about. Um, but I also think that there's a lot of information that we can gain uh, from this kind of research that can be applicable to a wide variety of people. So as I mentioned, for example, you know, you have this, uh, this emergent surgery of penis transplants, you know, that could really fundamentally, you know, change uh, the lives of a lot of people who want to change genders. And as a result, a population that is generally underserved by the medical community can find themselves being the beneficiaries of, of the kinds of discoveries that, that happen in the field. It's weird to think the military research is leading to better quality of life for people back at home, but that's what we, we're talking about in a lot of cases. Even the stuff about sound, how so many members of the military are essentially losing their hearing just in everyday situations, I feel that's got to be applicable to so many people back here where it's like, they're just not going to wear those like foam earplugs all day for like eight hours a day, no matter how much you tell them. So we have to come up with better ways to mitigate it. I feel like that applicability of uh, military research back to our real life. That was something I wasn't expecting at all. I thought it was all going to be fantastical, crazy desert stories of science, but it's not, it's not that at all. Um, but I have to give Mary credit, and you guys talked about this. She always uncovers these strange stories from scientists and engineers that I've never, ever, ever heard of before. And I love that. I love that she's finding these interesting personalities you know, buried beneath the bureaucracy oftentimes, uh, who have a lot to say. And um, I think there's a lesson in that for all of us when we're, especially us that do these kinds of shows, that there's incredible science stories out there if you just hunt enough. 
Yeah, I mean, if you told me that uh, you, I was going to read a book about the science of the military, I would think, oh, you know, the stealth bomber, you know, the major, the sort of, you know, fancy bombs and the, the kind of, you know, stuff that is the, the sort of science fiction-y and, and in that perspective. So it was really interesting to read a book that was very much geared towards the human side. Um, these, you know, these everyday problems that soldiers face that scientists are having a hand in trying to fix. And then also to think about the fact that, yes, you know, in a way, science creates more regulations, right? We can't always control for every variable. And when we give people recommendations, we there are there are lots of caveats and, and situational um considerations. And yet for a person who has to make a split second life or death decision, that can be very unhelpful. <laughs> and, you know, they, they don't want to be burdened by having to go through a hierarchy of, uh, you know, yes, no answers to, uh, you know, a bunch of questions when they're trying to figure out, you know, what do I do in this particular moment? So where does Grunt fit in the Museum of Mary Roach books? Yeah, it's a good question. So, you know, to me, it felt a little bit uh, different, tangential to some of her other work. Um, Gulp felt very much like the next uh, step. Uh, and and this felt like it was a little bit in a different direction. And that was because of the sort of political side of it. And also because for the most part, uh, she pokes fun at herself being the outsider rather than uh, using her comedy to illuminate some of the things that are funny about what she's studying. So in Gulp, for example, it was a lot of funny things about the body, not so much about Mary. So, you know, that that made me wonder if, if she might go in the future into directions that are also maybe more politically charged and, uh, you know, where there's, it's, you know, pardon the pun, but more of a minefield. But at the same time, I feel like, it, you know, it was so unexpected that it's, just as likely that the next book is going to be just as far out in a different field. I look forward to a story about hot peppers and the <laughs> science of hot peppers. That's the book I want to read. Yeah. At least. I mean, there's lots of stuff too in the book that we didn't even touch on. Like for example, the question of sleep. Uh, how do you ensure high quality sleep in a submarine, for example, uh, where you don't have access to natural light and all kinds of other things. And so there's, there's really some fascinating research that, uh, that she talks about. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. Uh, we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, David Noel, John Kirk, and Jordan Miller. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by our own personal sleep researcher, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Chien. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indrevis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geesh. See you next week. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. 
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.